Hello and welcome again to Who Knows. My name is Chris and we are reading Ethics for the New Millennium by the Dalai Lama. Um, this is a continuation because the last chapter was really short so I'm reading another one. Um, we are on chapter 13. This is going to be a pretty long one so bear with me and we will uh, get through this together, you know what I'm saying? Uh, I need to turn the music in my head down. So, Alright. Not too shabby. Alright, so we're going to get right into this. Chapter 13, The Ethics in Society. There's a subtitle, Education and the Media. Living a truly ethical life in which we put the needs of others first and provide for their happiness has tremendous implications for our society. If we change internally, disarm ourselves by dealing constructively with our negative thoughts and emotions, we can literally change the whole world. We have so many powerful tools for creating our ethical and peaceful society already in place, yet some of these tools are not being used to their full potential. At this point, I would like to share some of my views on how and in which arenas we can begin to bring about a spiritual revolution of kindness, compassion, patience, tolerance, forgiveness, and humility. When we are committed to the ideal of concern for all others, it follows that this should inform our social and political policies. I say this not because I suppose that thereby we will be able to solve all society's problems overnight, Rather, it is my conviction that unless this wider sense of compassion, which I have been urging on the reader, inspires our politics, our policies are likely to harm instead of serve humanity as a whole. We must, I believe, take practical steps to acknowledge our responsibility to all others, both now and in the future. This is true even where there may be little practical difference between those policies that are motivated by this compassion and those that are motivated by, for example, national interest. Now, although it is certainly the case that if all my suggestions concerning compassion, interdiscipline, wise discernment, and the cultivation of virtue were to be implemented widely, the world would automatically become a kinder, more peaceful place. I believe that, reala that reality compels us to tackle our problems at the level of society at the same time as that of the individual. The world will change when each individual makes the attempt to counter their negative thoughts and emotions and when we practice compassion for its inhabitants, irrespective of whether or not we have direct relationships with them. In view of this, there are, I believe, a number of areas, which, a number of areas to which we need to give special consideration in the light of universal responsibility. These include education, the media, our natural environment, politics and economics, peace and disarmament, and interreligious harmony. Each has a vital role to play in shaping the world we live in, and I propose to examine them briefly in turn. Before doing so, I must stress that the views I express are personal. They are also the views of someone who claims no expertise with, with, with respect to the technicalities of these matters. But if what I say seems objectionable, objectionable, my hope is that it will at least give the reader pause for thought. 
For although it would not be surprising to see a divergence of opinion concerning how they are to be translated into actual policies, the need for compassion for basic spiritual values, for inner discipline, and the importance of ethical conduct generally are, in my view, in incontrovertible. The human mind, the low, is both the source and properly directed the solution to all of our problems. Those who attain great learning but lack a good heart are in danger of falling prey to the anxieties and restlessness which result from desires incapable of fulfillment. Conversely, a genuine understanding of spiritual values has the opposite effect. When we bring up our children to have knowledge without compassion, their attitude toward others is likely to be a mixture of envy of those in possessions above them, aggressive competitiveness towards their peers, and scorn for those less fortunate. This leads to a propensity toward greed, presumption, excess, and very quickly to loss of happiness. Knowledge is important, but much more so is the use toward which it is put. This depends on the heart and mind of the one who uses it. Education is much more than a matter of imparting the knowledge and skills by which narrow goals are achieved. It is also about opening the child's eyes to the needs and rights of others. We must show children that their actions have a universal dimension, and we must somehow find a way to build on their natural feelings of empathy so that they come to have a sense of responsibility towards others. For it is this which, start, which stirs us into action. Indeed, if we had to choose between learning and virtue, the latter is definitely more valuable. The good heart, which is the fruit of virtue, is by itself a great benefit to humanity. Mere knowledge is not. How, though, are we to teach morality to our children? I have a sense that, in general, modern educational systems neglect discussion of ethical matters. This is probably not intentional so much as, by, as a byproduct of historical reality. Secular educational systems were developed at a time when religious institutions were still highly influential throughout society. Because ethical and human values were and still are generally held to fall within the scope of religion, it was assumed that this aspect of a child's education would be looked after through his or her religious upbringing. This worked well enough until the influence of religion began to decline. Although the need is still there, it is not being met. Therefore, we must find some other way of showing children that basic human values are important, and we must also help them to develop these values. Ultimately, of course, the importance of concern for others is learned not from words, but from actions, the example we set. This is why the family environment itself is such a vital component in a child's upbringing. When a caring and compassionate atmosphere is absent from the home, when children are neglected by their parents, it is easy to recognize their damaging effects. The children tend to feel helpless and insecure, and their minds are often agitated. Conversely, when children receive constant affection and protection, they tend to be much happier and more confident in their abilities. Their physical health tends to be better too, and we find that they are concerned not just for themselves, but for others as well. The home environment is also important because children learn negative behavior from their parents. If, for example, the father is always getting to fight, into fights with his associates, or if the father and mother are always arguing destructively, although at first the child may find this objectionable, eventually they will come to understand it as quite normal. This learning is then taken out of the home and into the world. It also goes without saying that what children learn about ethical conduct at school has to be practiced first. In this, teachers have a special responsibility. 
By their own behavior, they can make children remember them for their whole lives. If this behavior is principled, disciplined, and compassionate, their values will be readily impressed on the child's mind. This is because the lessons taught by a teacher with a positive motivation, the Kong Long, penetrate deepest into their students' minds. I know this from my own experience. As a boy, I was very lazy, but when I was aware of the affection and concern of my tutors, their lessons would generally sink in much more successfully than if one of them was harsh or unfeeling that day. So far as the specifics of education are concerned, that is for the experts. I will, therefore, confine myself to a few suggestions. The first is that in order to awaken young people's consciousness to the importance of basic human values, it is better not to pre present society's problems purely as an ethical manner, matter or as a religious matter. It is important to emphasize that what is at stake is our continued survival. This way they will come to see that the future lies in their hands. Secondly, I do believe that dialogue can and should be taught in class. Presenting students with a controversial issue and having them debate it is a wonderful way to introduce them to the concept of resolving conflict non-violently. Indeed, one would hope that if schools were to make this a priority, it could have a beneficial effect on family life itself. On seeing his or her parents wrangling, a child that had understood the value of dialogue would instinctively say, oh no, that's not the way, you have to talk to discuss things properly. Finally, it is essential that we eliminate from our school's curricula any tendency toward presenting others in a negative light. There are undoubtedly some parts of the world where the teaching of history, for example, fosters bigotry and racism toward other communities. Of course this is wrong. It contributes nothing to the happiness of humanity. Now more than ever, we need to show our children that distinctions between my country and your country, my religion and your religion, are secondary considerations. Rather, we must insist on the observation that my right to happiness carries no more weight than others' rights. This is not to say that I believe we should educate children to abandon or ignore the culture and historical tradition they were born into. On the contrary, it is very important they be grounded in these. It is good for children to learn to love their country, their religion, their culture, and so on. But the danger comes when this develops into narrow-minded nationalism, ethno ethnocentricity, and religious bigotry. The example of Mahatma Gandhi is pertinent here. Even though he had a very high level of Western education, he never forgot or became estranged from the rich heritage of his Indian court culture. If education constitutes one of our most powerful weapons in our quest to bring about a better, more peaceful world, the mass media is another. As every political figure knows, they are no longer the only ones with authority in society. In addition to that of newspapers and books, radio, film, and television together, have an influence over individuals unimagined a hundred years ago. This power, confers a this power confers great responsibility on all who work in the media, but it also confers great responsibility on each of us who, as individuals, listen and read and watch. We too have a role to play. We are not powerless before the media. The control switch is in our own hand, after all. This does not mean that I advocate bland reporting or entertainment without excitement. On the contrary, so far as investigative journalism is concerned, I respect and appreciate the media's interference. 
Not all public servants are honest in discharging their duties. It is appropriate, therefore, to have journalists take. It is appropriate, therefore, to have journalists their noses as long as an elephant's trunk, snooping around and exposing wrongdoing where they find it. We need to know when this or that renowned individual hides a very different aspect behind a pleasant exterior. There should be no discrepancy between external appearances and the individual's inner life. It is the same person after all. Such discrepancies suggest them to be untrustworthy. At the same time, it is vital that the investigator does not act out of improper motives. Without impartiality and without due respect for the other's rights, the investigation itself becomes tainted. With regard to the question of the media's emphasis on sex and violence, there are many factors to consider. In the first instance, it is clear that much of the viewing public enjoys the sensations provoked by this sort of material. Secondly, I very much doubt that those producing material containing a lot of explicit sex and violence intend to harm by it. Their motives are surely just commercial. As to whether this is positive or negative in itself is to my mind less important than the question of whether it can have an ethically wholesome effect. If the result of seeing a film in which there is a lot of violence is that the viewer's compassion is aroused, then perhaps that depiction of violence would be justified. But if the accumulation of violent images leads to indifference, then I think it is not. Indeed, such a hardening of heart is potentially dangerous. It leads all too easily to lack of empathy. When the media focuses too closely on the negative aspects of human nature, there is a danger that we become persuaded that violence and aggression are its principal characteristics. This is a mistake, I believe. The fact that violence is newsworthy suggests the very opposite. Good news is not remarked on precisely because there is so much of it. Consider that at any given moment there must be hundreds of millions of acts of kindness taking place around the world. Although there will undoubtedly be many acts of violence in progress at the same time, their number is surely very much less. If, therefore, the media is to be ethically responsible, it needs to reflect this simple fact. Clearly it, is necessarily, clearly, it is necessary to regulate the media. The fact that we prevent our children from watching certain things indicates that we already discriminate between what is and not, is not appropriate, according to different circumstances. But whether legislation is the right way to go about this is hard to judge. Excuse me. As in all, matter, as in all matters of ethics, discipline is only really effective when it comes from within. Perhaps the best way to ensure that the output various media provides is healthy lies in the way we educate our children. Okay, perhaps the best way to ensure that the output various media provides is healthy lies in the way we educate our children. If we bring them up to be aware of their responsibilities, they will be more disciplined when they become involved in the media. Although it is perhaps too much to hope that the media will actually promote the ideals and principles of compassion, at least we should be able to expect that those involved will take care when there is the potential for negative impact. At least there should be no room for the incitement of negative acts such as racist violence, but beyond this, I don't know. Perhaps we might be able to find a way to connect more directly those who create stories for news and entertainment with the viewer, the reader, and the listener.
The natural world. If there is one area in which both education and the media have a special responsibility, it is, I believe, our natural environment. Again, this responsibility has less to do with questions of right or wrong than with the question of survival. The natural world is our home. It is not necessarily sacred or holy. It is simply where we live. It is, therefore, in our interest to look after it. This is common sense. But only recently have the size of our population and the power of science and technology grown to the point that they can have a direct impact on nature. To put it another way, until now, Mother Earth has been able to tolerate our sloppy house habits. The stage has been reached where she can no longer accept our behavior in silence. The problems caused by environmental degradation can be seen as her response to our irresponsible behavior. She is warning us that there are limits even to her tolerance. Nowhere are, the nowhere are the consequences of our failure to exercise discipline in the way we relate to our environment more apparent than in the case of present-day Tibet. It is no exaggeration to say that the Tibet I grew up in was a wildlife paradise. Every traveler who visited Tibet before the middle of the 20th century remarked on this. Animals were rarely hunted except in the remotest areas where crops could not be grown. Indeed, it was customary for government officials annually to issue a proclamation protecting wildlife. Nobody, it read, however humble or noble, shall harm or do violence to the creatures of the waters or the wild. The only exceptions to this were rats and wolves. As a young man, I recall seeing great numbers of different species whenever I traveled outside Lhasa. My chief memory of the three-month journey across Tibet from my birthplace at Taxter Texter in the east to Lhasa, where I was formally proclaimed Dalai Lama as a four-year-old boy, is of the wildlife we encountered along the way. Immense herds of kiang, wild asses, and drong, wild yak, freely roamed the Great Plains. Occasionally, we would catch sight of shimmering herds of gawa, the shy Tibetan gazelle, of wa, the white-lipped deer, or of tso, our majestic antelope. I remember, too, my fascination for the little chibi, or pika, which would congregate on grassy areas. They were so friendly. I loved to watch the birds, the dignified go, the bearded eagle, soaring high above the monasteries perched up in the mountains, the flocks of geese, nangbar, and occasionally at night to hear the call of the bokpa, the long-eared owl. Even in Lhasa, one did not feel in any way cut off from the natural world. In my rooms at the top of the Patala, the, wind, the winter palace of the Dalai Lamas, I spent countless hours as a child studying the behavior of the red-beaked Kyungkar, which nested in the crevices of its walls. And behind the Nor, Norbulinka, the summer palace, I often saw pairs of trung-trung, Japanese black-necked crane, birds which for me are the epitome of elegance and grace that lived in the marshlands there. And all this is not to mention the crowning glory of Tibetan fauna, the bears and mountain foxes, the chenku, the wolves, the sazik, the beautiful snow leopard, and the seek, which is the lynx, which struck terror into the hearts of the nomad farmer or the gentle-faced giant panda, which is native to the border area between Tibet and China. Sadly, this profusion of wildlife is no longer to be found. 
partly due to hunting, but primarily due to loss of habitat. What remains half a century after Tibet was occupied is only a fraction of what there was. Without exception, every Tibetan I have spoken with who has been back to visit Tibet after 30 or 40 years has reported, has reported on a striking absence of wildlife. Whereas before, wild animals would often come close to the house, today they are hardly anywhere to be seen. Equally troubling is the devastation of Tibet's forests. In the past, the hills were all thickly wooded. Today, those who have been back report that they are clean-shaven like a monk's head. The government in Beijing has admitted that the tragic flooding of western China and further afield is in part due to this. And yet I hear continuous reports of round-the-clock convoys of trucks carrying logs east out of Tibet. This is especially tragic given the country's mountainous terrain and harsh climate. It means that replanting requires sustained care and attention. Unfortunately, there is little evidence of this. None of this is to say that historically we Tibetans were deliberately conservationists we were not. The idea of something called pollution simply never occurred to us. There is no denying that we were rather spoiled in this respect. A small population inhabited a very large area with clean, dry air and an abundance of pure mountain water. This innocent attitude toward cleanliness meant that when we Tibetans went into exile, we were astonished to discover, for example, the existence of streams whose water is not drinkable. Like an only child, no matter what we did, Mother Earth tolerated our behavior. The result was that we had no proper understanding of cleanliness and hygiene. People would spit or blow their nose in the street without giving it a second thought. Indeed, saying this, I recall one elderly Kampa, a former bodyguard who used to come each day to circum circumambulate my residence. I've never heard of that word, circumambulate. I have to look that one up. My residence in Darslama, Dar Dharamsala. A popular devotion. Unfortunately, he suffered greatly from bronchitis. This was exacerbated by the incense he carried. At each corner, therefore, he would pause to cough and expectorate so furiously that I sometimes wondered whether he had come to pray or just to spit. Over the years since our first arriving in exile, I have taken a close interest in environmental issues. The Tibetan government in exile has paid particular attention to introducing our children to their responsibilities as residents of this fragile planet, and I never hesitate to speak out on the subject whenever I am given the opportunity. In particular, I always stress the need to consider how our actions in affecting the environment are likely to affect others. I admit that this is very often difficult to judge. We cannot say for sure what the ultimate effects of, for example, deforestation might be on the soil and the local rainfall, let alone what the implications are for the planet's weather systems. The only clear thing is that we humans are the only species with the power to destroy the earth as we know it. The birds have no such power, nor do the insects, nor does any mammal. Yet if we have the capacity to destroy the earth, so too do we have the capacity to protect it. What is essential is that we find methods of manufacture that do not destroy nature. We need to find ways of cutting down on our use of wood and other limited natural resources. I am no expert in this field, and I cannot suggest how this might be done. I know only that it is possible, given the necessary determination. For example, I recall hearing on a visit to Stockholm some years ago that, for the first time in many years, fish were returning to the river that runs through the city. 
Until recently, there were none due to industrial pollution, yet this improvement was by no means the result of all the local factories closing down. Likewise, on a visit to Germany, I was shown an industrial development designed to produce no pollution. So clearly, solutions do exist to limit damage to the natural world without bringing industry to a halt. This does not mean that I believe we can rely on technology to overcome all of our problems. Let me get a drink. Hold on. A little parched. This does not mean that I believe we can rely on technology to overcome all of our problems. Nor do I believe we can afford to continue destructive practices in anticipation of technical fixes being developed. Besides, the environment does not need fixing. It is our behavior in relation to it that needs to change. I question whether, in the case of such a massive blooming disaster as that caused by the greenhouse effect, a fix could ever exist, even in theory. And supposing it could, we have to ask whether it would ever be feasible to apply it on the scale that would be required. What are the expense and what are the costs in terms of our natural resources? I suspect that these would be prohibitively, prohibitively high. There is also the fact that in many other fields, such as in the humanitarian relief of hunger, there are already insufficient funds to cover the work that could be undertaken. Therefore, even if one were to argue that the necessary funds could be raised, morally speaking, this would be almost impossible to justify given such deficiencies. It would not be right to deploy huge sums simply in order to enable the industrialized nations to continue their harmful practices while people in other places cannot even feed themselves. All this points to the need to recognize the universal dimension of our actions and based on this to exercise restraint. The necessity of this is forcefully demonstrated when we consider the propagation of our species. Although from the point of view of all the major religions, the more humans the better, and although it may be true that some of the latest studies suggest a population implosion a century from now, Still, I believe we cannot ignore this issue. As a monk, it is perhaps inappropriate for me to com comment on these matters, but I believe that family planning is important. Of course, I do not mean to suggest we should not have children. Human life is a precious resource, and married couples should have children unless there are compelling reasons not to. The idea of not having children just because we want to enjoy a full life without responsibility is, I think, quite mistaken. At the same time, couples do have a duty to consider the impact our numbers have on the natural environment. This is especially true given modern technology. Fortunately, more and more people recognize the importance of ethical discipline as a means of ensuring a healthy place to live. For this reason, I am optimistic that disaster can be averted. Until comparatively recently, Few people gave much thought to the effects of human activity on our planet. Yet today, there are even more. There are even political parties whose main concern it is. Moreover, the fact that the air we breathe, the water we drink, the forests and oceans we, which sustain millions of different life forms, and the climatic patterns which govern our weather systems all transcend national boundaries is a source of hope. It means that no country, no matter either how rich, no matter either how rich and powerful or how poor and weak it may be, can afford not to take action in respect to this issue. So far as the individual is concerned, the problems resulting from our neglect of our natural environment are a powerful reminder that we have 
we all have a contribution to make. And while one person's actions may not have a significant impact, the combined effect of millions of individuals' actions certainly does. This means that it is time for all those living in the industrially developed nations to give serious thought to changing their lifestyle. Again, this is not so much a question of ethics. The fact that the population of the rest of the world has an equal right to improve their standard of living is in some ways more important than the affluent being able to continue their lifestyle. If this is to be fulfilled without causing irredeemable violence to the natural world with all the negative consequences for happiness that this would entail, the richer countries must set an example. The cost to the planet and thus the cost to humanity of ever-increasing standards of living is simply too great. Politics and Economics We all dream of a kinder, happier world. But if we wish to make it a reality, we have to ensure that compassion inspires all our actions. This is especially true with regard to our political and economic policies. Given that probably half the world's population lacks the basic necessities of adequate food, shelter, medical care, and education, I believe we need to question whether we are really pursuing the wisest course in this regard. I think not. If it seemed likely that after another 50 years of carrying on as we are, we could definitely eradicate poverty, perhaps our present inequity of wealth distribution could be justified. Yet on the contrary, if present trends continue, it is certain that the poor will get poorer. Our basic sense of fairness and justice alone suggests that we should not be content to let this happen. Of course, I don't know much about economics, but I find it hard to avoid the conclusion that the wealth of the rich is maintained through neglect of the poor, especially by means of international debt. Saying this, I do not mean to suggest that the undeveloped countries have no share of responsibility for their problems. Nor can we put all social and economic ills down to politicians and public officials. I do not deny that even in the world's most established democracies, it is quite usual to hear politicians making unrealistic promises and boasting about what they are going to do when elected. But these people do not drop out of the sky. So if it is true that a given country's politicians are corrupt, we tend to find that the society is itself lacking in morality and that the individuals who make up the population do not lead ethical lives. In such cases, in such cases it is not entirely fair for the electorate to criticize its politicians. On the other hand, when people possess healthy values and where they practice ethical discipline in their own lives out of concern for others, the public officials produced by that society will quite naturally respect those same values. Each of us, therefore, has a role to play in creating a society in which respect and care for others based on empathy are given top priority. So far as the application of economic policy is concerned, the same considerations apply here as to every human activity. A sense of universal responsibility is crucial. I must admit, however, that I find it a bit difficult to make practical suggestions about the application of spiritual values in the field of commerce. This is because competition has such an important role to play. For this reason, the relationship between empathy and profit is necessarily a fragile one. Still, Excuse me. Still, I do not see why it should not be possible to have constructive competition. 
The key factor is the motivation of those engaged in it. When the intention is to exploit or destroy others, then clearly the outcome will not be positive. But when competition is conducted with a spirit of generosity and good intention, the outcome, although it must entail a degree of suffering for those who lose, will at least not be too harmful. Again, it may be object objected that the reality of commerce is such that we cannot realistically expect businesses to put people before profits. But here we must remember that those who run the world's industries and businesses are human beings too. Even the most hardened would surely admit that it is not right to seek profits regardless of consequences. If it were, dealing in drugs would not be wrong. So again, what is required is that each of us develops our compassionate nature. The more we do so, the more commercial enterprise will come to reflect basic human values. Conversely, if we ourselves neglect those values, it is inevitable that commerce will neglect them too. This is not just idealism. History shows that many of the positive developments in human society have occurred as a result of compassion. Consider, for example, the abolition of the slave trade. If we look at the evolution of human society, we see, that we see the necessity of having vision in order to bring about positive change. Ideals are the engine of progress. To ignore this and say merely that we need to be realistic in politics is severely mistaken. Our problems of economic disparity pose a very serious challenge to the whole human family. Nevertheless, as we enter the new millennium, I believe there are a good number of reasons for optimism. During the early and middle years of the 20th century, there was a general perception that political and economic power was of more consequence than truth. But I believe that this is changing. Even the wealthiest and most powerful nations understand that there is no point in neglecting basic human values. The notion that there is room for ethics in international relations is also gaining ground. Irrespective of whether it is translated into meaningful action, at least words like reconciliation and nonviolence and compassion are becoming stock phrases among politicians. This is a useful development. Then, according to my own experience, I note that when I travel abroad, I am often asked to speak about peace and compassion to quite large audiences, often in excess of a thousand. I doubt very much whether these topics would have attracted such numbers 40 or 50 years ago. Developments such as these indicate that collectively we humans are giving more weight to fundamental values such as justice and truth. I also take comfort in the fact that as the world economy evolves, the more explicitly interdependent it becomes. As a result, every nation is to a greater or lesser extent dependent on every other nation. The modern economy, like the environment, knows no boundaries. Even those countries openly hostile to one another must cooperate in their use of the world's resources. Often, for example, they will be dependent on the same rivers. And the more interdependent our economic relationships, the more interdependent must our political relationships become. Thus, we have witnessed, for example, the growth of the European Union from a small caucus of trading partners into something approaching a confederation of states with a membership now well into the double figures. We see similar, though presently less well-developed, groupings throughout the world. The Association of Southeast Asian Nations, the Organization for African Unity, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, to name but three. Each of these testifies to the human impulse to join together for the common good and reflects the continuing evolution of human society. 
what began with remotely small tribal units has progressed through the foundation of city-states to nationhood and now to alliances comprising hundreds of millions of people which increasingly transcend geographical, cultural, and ethical divi ethnic divisions. This is a trend which I believe will and must continue. We cannot deny, however, that parallel to the proliferation of these political and economic alliances, there is also a clear urge toward greater consolidation along the lines of ethnicity, language, religion, and culture, often in the context of violence following loosening of the bonds of nation-statehood. What are we to make of this seeming paradox? The trend toward transi transnational cooperative groupings on the one hand and the impulse toward localization on the other. In fact, there need not necessarily be a contradiction between the two. We can still imagine regional communities united in trade, social policy, and security arrangements, yet consisting of a multiplicity of autonomous ethical, ethnic Autonomous, ethnic, cultural, religious, and other groupings. There could be a legal system protecting basic human rights common to the larger community, which left the constituent communities free to pursue their desired way of life. At the same time, it is important that the establishment of unions comes about voluntarily and on the basis of recognition that the interests of those concerned are better served through collaboration. They must not be imposed. Indeed, the challenge of the new millennium is surely to find ways to achieve international or better intercommunity cooperation wherein human diversity is acknowledged and the rights of all are respected. So that was chapter 13 of Ethics for the New Millennium by the Dalai Lama. Interesting opinions there. Um, Take uh, take uh, what you will out of that. Um, let's see what we got. Doo -doo. So we have one, two. Three. Three more chapters left, guys, in this book. And we are finished. Venuto. What do you say? I don't even know what I just said. Finito. I don't know. Um, yeah, so Dalai Lama, Ethics for the New Millennium. Let's just go back here real quick. I want to let you guys know. This was written in 1999. So obviously this is going into 2000 that he wrote this. And that was 22 years ago, guys. 22? Third, wait, yeah. Yeah, 22 years. 22-year-old book. Some of it still has, uh, still holds today. So keep all those things in mind, I guess. Pow, pow. Um, thanks for coming, guys. I really do appreciate you being here. Um... For all of you that are sticking around and listening to my voice read to you. Um, there's no method to this madness. Maybe there is, maybe there's not. But right now, you just yeah, come to listen to me when you're ready. Because I'm only going to read when I want to. So. <laughs> um, but I do appreciate every one of you guys being here. So thanks, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.